Hi, everyone. Welcome to the CNS December 2021 edition of the Journal Club podcast. This is Dr. Han Yan from Toronto as your host today. We will be discussing the paper Real World Preliminary Experience with Responsive Neurostimulation in Pediatric Epilepsy, a Multicenter Retrospective Observational Study. Joining us, we have Dr. Arya Fala. Would you like to introduce yourself, Dr. Fala? Sure. I am uh, Dr. Arya Fala. I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon at UCLA Mattel Children's Hospital, and I specialize in uh, surgical epilepsy. Thank you so much. Uh, we also have our guest faculty. Uh, we'd like to welcome Dr. Skellig Stone. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Great to be a part of this. Uh, my name is Skellig Stone. I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon at Boston Children's Hospital, and I specialize also in uh, epilepsy and functional neurosurgery for children. Thanks so much for joining us. And also we have Dr. Rafael Vega, uh, and if you could please introduce yourself as well. Of course, yeah, it's a pleasure to be back. And uh, just I'm the CNS uh, podcast co-chair and uh, be helping out with the uh, meeting, but I'm very happy to have Dr. Yan uh, moderate today. Thank you. So again, I would like to thank all of our panelists for joining today and thank you to all of our listeners as well. Um, to begin with, Dr. Fala, I'd like you to give a little summary of the paper, if you would. Of course. So, um, so as we all know, uh, that responsive neurostimulation has been approved um, in the United States uh, for treatment of medically refractory uh, epilepsy in adults 18 years of age or older um, with uh, one or two uh, foci. And Increasingly, uh, us uh, pediatric neurosurgeons and uh, pediatric epilepsy centers around the country have been using uh, responsive neurostimulation off-label uh, in children. And the purpose of this study was to document uh, our experience um, in a multi-center approach uh, using this technology. So in doing so, this is a retrospective observational study that was conducted um, at five academic pediatric epilepsy centers within the United States, including our center here at UCLA, Mattel Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, Primary Children's Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah, Lucille Packer Children's Hospital um, in Stanford and Palo Alto, Nicholas Children's Hospital in Miami, and finally Children's Hospital in Colorado. And what we did is we uh, put together uh, our experience with all the RNS patients that have been treated through our program and uh, making sure to exclude any patients that had thalamic stimulation. So these are patients all with neocortically placed um, uh, RNS. And overall, we had uh, 35 patients in the study. Now, um, only 17 of them were less than 18 years of age. And the reason why I included everyone was because they were um, worked out primarily at a pediatric uh, epilepsy hospital with a very similar um, pre-surgical workup. But in our uh, patients less than 18 years of age and the one, uh, uh, the youngest patient being three years of age, we were able to see that RNS was, seemed to have very similar efficacy compared to uh, the adult cohort that was published in the um, landmark uh, trials. Specifically, 6% of our patients achieved seizure freedom, about 13% of them 
achieve, were, uh, achieved greater than 90% seizure reduction, 41% uh, over 50% seizure reduction, and only 25% of them had less than 50% uh, seizure reduction. The average follow-up was 1.7 years. And notably, there was not a single complication in our, the children less than 17 years of age. There were two infections in the cohort in uh, the patients that were over 18 years of age, and there was one lead fracture, uh, but importantly, there were no uh, complications. So this data is um, very uh, preliminary, um, and the outcomes are uh, just less than two years, but so far it seems to be a well-tolerated and effective off-label um, uh, treatment strategy for use in uh, children with refractory epilepsy. Thank you so much for your summary. Um, now, Dr. Stone, I'll ask you if you have any questions for Dr. Fowler. Yeah, well, it's uh, wonderful to get to talk to you, Dr. Fowler, about this, and uh, uh, congratulations on putting this together. Um, this is very important work because this is leading edge therapy, and um, it has a growing, impressive track record in adults, and I think many of us in this pediatric realm are, are dabbling in it now. Um, and uh, it's very important to keep track of what we're doing. Um, so uh, it's great to bring together so many centers um, and, uh, and put this together. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think for many of us in the field, the fact that it works in children is not too much of a surprise because it seems to work in adults and properly selected patients. Um, and, uh, and, and it's great to see that that seems to be panning out in preliminary experience. Um, I guess one of the limitations with this kind of work, of course, is when you have a new therapy uh, being applied in a new patient population, you never have very long follow-up. And uh, in terms of long-term complications um, or, and or long-term outcomes in children versus adults, um, seems to be that not much happened in this study that was bad, which is good. Um, but do you have any thoughts on what issues might be more of a problem in the pediatric population versus the adult population. Thank you, Dr. Stone. Yeah, those, that's a, a really good question. Um, we obviously need to track uh, these patients uh, over the years long to get, obtain that long-term data. Um, again, so far, uh, our early experience, uh, we, did, we didn't see uh, many problems, but I think the the biggest concern for pediatric neurosurgeons, one is the growing skull of a child. Um, so in this paper, the youngest child was a three-year-old and I can tell you that in, in the year or so follow-up, there was no problems, but obviously you'd expect if you're gonna see a problem to be uh, several years from now. Um, so I, we do need to track that uh, carefully. Um, one of the strategies to uh, prevent a very abnormal shaped skull maybe to uh, do a larger craniectomy than you normally would to sort of uh, slow down the rate at which the skull may uh, be impacted by the um, uh, foreign uh, device. Um, lead migration is uh, of obvious concern as well, especially when this is placed in very young children. So we need to, again, follow that very closely to see what percentage of our uh, children may require uh, lead revision. Now, one strategy is because um, uh, you know, the targets in epilepsy as opposed to deep brain stimulation are usually not that small. 
So even if there's a little bit of lead migration, um, I, I, I don't anticipate that that's gonna move the, the electrode far enough to lose efficacy. But again, we need data to, to support that uh, 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 you know, hypothesis. Um, the issue also comes up uh, of the number uh, of battery replacements that may be required. Uh, we certainly know we have data from uh, vagus nerve stimulation where these children may require repeat operations every four to six years for replacement of battery. Um, and we have to see how that pans out when it comes to um, going through the wound multiple times in the scalp. Um, the, the nice thing about the newer version of the responsive neurostimulation is that it seems to have about twice the battery life of the vagus nerve stimulator. So in theory, that may cut down operations uh, by half. But I can tell you, I mean, this, this uh, field is so rapidly changing that I, I don't know what kind of batteries they're going to have eight years from now when we're ready to replace these batteries. So, um, and, and I will say that none of the patients in this study have had their RNS long enough to require a battery change. Those are sort of the, uh, the main things. Uh, the, the nice thing is that um, MRIs can be obtained in these patients. It's a little bit of uh, strategy involved with um, placing the responsive neural stimulator probably away from the area that you're most interested in to be able to obtain imaging. It certainly may become a problem for patients uh, in specific uh, populations, such as uh, tuberous sclerosis, where they need surveillance imaging, for example, for a for SEGAs or, or tubers, or other conditions such as rasmussen's encephalitis, where um, uh, you do want to monitor uh, the, the brain and potential atrophy. Um, but so far, we've been able to obtain, uh, uh, our experience is that we've been able to obtain images that are quite uh, good, even with the use of uh, the uh, RNS uh, stimulator. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I, I noted in the paper was, um, I think, you know, the, one of the comments was that for a lot of these patients that had, for example, invasive recording prior to RNS placement, either in the form of a stereo EEG or subdural grid placement, that many patients had the RNS device implanted uh, immediately at the same operation as, uh, as the removal of the invasive recording implants. And um, I just personally found this interesting because I've, uh, you know, in my practice, whether it's putting in an RNS or DBS or any kind of permanent stimulator, I've tended to lean on staging the removal of the invasive recording uh, and, and delaying implanting the permanent implant because of fears of possible infection, you know, after the child's had wires coming out of the head for a week or so. Um, so I was impressed to see there was an infection in the children, but I'm just wondering the two infections, were they in cases like that? Do you have any comments on that? Or is it a little hard to, to you know, conclude anything? So uh, I must say that there was um, uh, some variability between the centers. Um, and um, maybe in this study, uh, a, a reason why a lot of the patients had the RNS implanted um, at the same time of the uh, invasive EEG monitoring study is because I think a lot of those patients were UCLA patients and we still use subdural grids uh, quite a bit. And um, for the patients that require craniotomy, um, 
given uh, you know we are also concerned about infection, uh, we would also be concerned of um, subjecting them to an additional craniotomy at a later time and potential um, uh, adherence of the dura to the brain and so on. So we do like to implant the RNS um, at the same time. The majority of the groups, um, uh, especially the ones that do uh, invasive uh, depth or stereo G evaluations, do delay the RNS implantations, and we do too for the patients that we uh, uh, put SEG electrodes in. Um, usually we delay it by six weeks. Interestingly, only one of the centers would implant patients at the same time following an SEG evaluation. I don't think we saw any infections from that one particular group, but again, keep in mind our, our sample, our numbers are really low. So, um, you know, that, that's something else that we have to track um, really carefully. Interestingly, um, I, I guess it's not surprising, but interestingly that uh, the patients that undergo a primarily a subdural evaluation end up getting strip electrodes and the patients that get a, um, a, a stereo EG type uh, monitoring end up getting depth electrodes. So that, that uh, was definitely a trend uh, that we saw. That's definitely interesting. <clears throat> so, um, you know, as a, as a modern uh, epilepsy surgeon, there's so many tools at our disposal now. We've still got our old school craniotomies and resections, disconnections. We've got lasers. We've got RNS, DBS, VNS, um, you know, uh, ultrasound, focused ultrasounds coming online. I mean, there's just so many choices nowadays. So now that you're a, an expert in this area and have looked at this, uh, who do you feel are really the key patients that we should be considering albeit off-label, so you know we're not committing you to anything here, but uh, that we should be considering as perhaps the ideal candidates for RNS moving forward. Uh, that's a great question, Skelly. I, I, I think um, we're still in the very early days uh, of RNS. I mean, certainly it's an exciting time, because as you mentioned, those are all exciting technologies. And I do think not only are treatments becoming more tailored, but are indications are expanding for treating pediatric epilepsy. And, um, you know, I'd say still, I, the ideal patients are ones where you cannot do a resection and you have a focal lesion. Um, we certainly still always want to consider a resection and the opportunity to uh, cure the patient's epilepsy um, if possible. But in situations of eloquent function, Landic area epilepsy or language area epilepsy where resection may not be a consideration for the family or child, the RNS really gives you that um, um, backup option. I remember, you know, um, you and I both the same residency and sometimes we would subject patients to subdural grid evaluations and they would not accept the risk of a resection in an area of the brain that was eloquent. And, we really had no choice but to explant the patient. Um, and you know, we basically subjected them to two operations with really no treatment option. So I think those are the perfect patients that, and I feel nowadays, you know, I, I don't remember the last time we've implanted a patient and, and not been able to offer them anything, right? So I think that that's really a good option. Um, the other uh, patient populations that are not good surgical candidates, you know, if you take a 
potentially a, a older patient, a teenage patient with vascular encephalitis, um, with who has preserved motor function uh, or language function, and they would not be a candidate for a um, receptive uh, surgery or a hemispherectomy. Uh, I think those are the patient populations that could benefit as well, right? Those are, again, th those are rare conditions. So we really need to do a good job collecting long-term data. Um, I, I think those, that could be a, a good option. Um, and, and I think there's also a, if you, if, you if you think about the number of patients that we are treating, they're still, um, we're still really under treating uh, patients with uh, drug-resistant epilepsy. And I suspect a lot of patients are just afraid of having a part of their brain removed, right? They, it, it's, you know, to us, we do this every day, but, but I think for, for families and some physicians, um, you know, out there in the community, it's still a, uh, you know, it, it's a scary thought to have a part of your brain removed permanently. So um, for those patients uh, that may uh, not want a resection of the brain, um, but, but really want better seizure control, this may be a, a good option um, uh, for them as well. But I think, you know, more and more, I, uh, I'm very excited to see how the field is moving forward and a lot of work by even our colleagues that are expanding the use of RNS in, in other conditions. I did mention early on that we excluded patients with thalamic stimulation, but that is certainly something that we are hearing about more often and you know, we're, we're, we're gaining our own experience doing that. So I think there's a lot of, uh, interesting data that's coming up uh, down the pipeline. We have to be, um, uh, you know, uh, careful in, in, in patient selection. And then going back to your other point with VNS and, and DBS, um, I don't think we have good head-to-head -head data. I certainly uh, like the idea of RNS. Uh, primarily, I think the biggest strength is that EEG data that we obtain that we that we cannot. Um, uh, at least, uh, yeah, obtained as of now with the VNS or DBS system. So I think that that is exciting. Uh, that can really add to our understanding of a patient's epilepsy and ultimately providing more tailored treatments uh, than some of the other neuromodulation uh, strategies. Well, thanks again. Great to talk to uh, you and, and congratulations again on this uh, fantastic uh, publication. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for your questions, Dr. Stone. Um, so I guess as a follow-up to some of Dr. Stone's questions, um, I was wondering, um, you've mentioned that some patients are very young, and I'm really glad to hear that the RNS system is uh, safe with MRIs. Um, do you think that in the very young children, when we're worried about lead migration, there should be some form of routine follow-up MRIs that may not be you know, standard of care in adults? Or what are your thoughts about uh, having, you know, the type of uh, information we might want for children that might not be the same in the adult population. Yeah, so I, I think with the, especially the very young children, I do think we need to uh, keep an eye on their skull growth. Um, um, I, I probably wouldn't recommend doing routine uh, scans uh, because, you know, we are dealing with a cosmetic concern, right? So if there's a cosmetic concern, maybe at that point to obtain perhaps a CT scan um, to, to see how the uh, skull may be um, developing. 
again, I don't think with epilepsy, uh, and, and you know, the idea with RNS is you want to be as close to the seizure onset zone as possible, but um, you know, sometimes the seizure onset zones are broad, um, and and even if the lead migrates a little bit, uh, you're, I don't think you're going to see a major difference in um, uh, efficacy, or at least I, I don't suspect it. I think we need to uh, follow that. Um, and then the other thing with respect to age, because you know we talked about you know the three-year-old, you know the, a common question that comes up is how young is too young? And um, I, I don't know if we have an answer, but I can tell you as a um, epilepsy surgeon in children, I will say if the seizures are bad enough and RNS is your best option, consider it, right? Because what we're trying to prevent in children, which is very different in adults, is we're trying to prevent an epileptic encephalopathy. It's, it's time dependent. Right. So if we are able to modify the natural history of that disease with RNS, um, if there's concerns with skull growth, I think we can uh, tackle that in the, in the future, right? Because we're, we're dealing with bone at that point. And, you know, we, we can do craniofacial procedures to, to, um, to sort of help us with any deformities that may occur. Keep in mind, any deformities that do occur are going to take you know, years, right? So it's a very slow process. So, um, Having said that, I, I, I probably would not implant this in a child with open sutures, um, but, but you know, to anyone over the age of two. Um, now, the trick is to find an area of the skull that uh, is probably uh, most uh, conforming to the shape of the RNS, which is really designed for an adult skull. Um, but, uh, but again, if, if the seizures are bad enough, um, I, I think we should always consider this as, a, as an option. Yeah, that really makes sense. Thank you. Um, and I'm glad that the conversation has already, you know, involved uh, VNS and DVS. Um, do you think there would be a role for combined implants if, you know, a child already has VNS and whether the neurologist or the family feels that the treatment is insufficient, would there be a role to add on RNS, potentially DVS? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, uh, um, I, I do think we have now more and more patients that have a um, VNS and RNS. I don't think I've heard of a patient thus far, a pediatric patient with DBS and RNS, but there may be some out there. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's a very common conversation that comes up in clinic and even at our epilepsy meetings um, because we do not have any head-to-head -head data. Uh, comparing the efficacy of these uh, treatment approaches. Um, each one has, you know, the VNS and DBS. Um, uh, I guess um, the nice thing is you don't really need to know where the seizures are coming from. Um, and, and they would, you know, you don't need to do any sort of um, invasive evaluation. And I must say in this cohort, it seems like almost all the patients have an invasive evaluation, but uh, uh, just to try to optimize placement of the RNS. So that those technologies do have their benefits. Um, I guess the biggest downside is not having that uh, EEG, uh, ECOG uh, data. Um, I do think there's a role for multiple uh, devices. Uh, I do think though we should uh, carefully, and, and we, can, we can always do a VNS first or RNS first or vice versa, but I do think once we implant uh, one of these devices, we need to first try to optimize its use before we consider 
putting a second device. Um, sometimes that can take a process of several months to, to a couple of years uh, to do that. But there's no reason why uh, a patient that has had failed VNS may not be a candidate for RNS or, or vice versa. Dr. Stone, do you have any comments about combined implants or the duration of uh, monitoring? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I agree with Aria. We, um, we have some patients that have um, VNS and DBS. Um, I don't, can't think of any patients that have RNS with one of the other devices, but, um, you know, I think probably would be a pretty rare case that would warrant consideration for two neuromodulatory devices. I think that increasingly in the future, you're going to see certainly with RNS that RNS and DBS lines are going to get blurred. They already can be a little bit blurred. There are some people putting RNS leads into the anterior thalamic nucleus, for example, which is a, you know, a, a DBS target um, that is approved for use with, uh, with, with DBS devices. Um, and you have, for example, you know, DBS devices like uh, the Medtronic Percept device that can now sense um, and, uh, you know, are evaluating its responsive capabilities that may eventually be online. So it's, uh, I think the lines are getting blurred. And, and I think probably um, what, what you may see is, for example, a next generation responsive neurostimulator device that can have more leads implanted and connected, allowing you more flexibility, not only in stimulation and recording parameters, but also in which targets could be activated at what times um, using a single device. Um, and I think that technology will be will help us as clinicians because it is a difficult decision right now in some cases. Um, I think that it's, at least the way I've looked at it, RNS tends to be in a little bit of a separate category because in my experience and, and you know, we've tended to consider RNS in patients that have a focal source for their seizures in an eloquent region, such as the primary visual cortex or primary expressive language center or something like that. Um, whereas, you know, the DBS and the VNS lines have been more blurred for us because those patients tend to be more similar and that you don't have a specific focus. So we haven't really considered RNS for those types of patients. Um, and obviously with VNS, you have the advantage of the fact that it doesn't involve putting anything in the head. Um, so from a risk standpoint, that can be favorable. Um, and, but for DBS, there may be, for certain patient populations, um, evidence at least pointing to the fact that it may have a greater clinical response in appropriately selected patients. So um, we've definitely seen a migration away from VNS, at least at our center, and towards uh, DBS for those types of patients. So I think I'm kind of rambling at this point, but basically uh, I think the technology will help us out a lot in that decision-making because it'll allow us to be more flexible with therapy delivery to a patient um, without requiring as much surgery or separate surgical procedures. So a device that allows us to accomplish the various uh, options in a single uh, patient, I think will, will help us there. Yeah, thanks so much. 
Um, another question for both of you um, is that obviously as a resident doing research on pediatric epilepsy, the measurement of um, pre and post surgical outcomes is really difficult, like measuring the number of seizures when sometimes seizures last uh, like a few seconds, but there may be hundreds in a day can be quite hard. So do you think the RNS or maybe even the DBS percept system can help in our future uh, measurement and, you know, clinical trials to better uh, understand seizure outcomes? Yeah, I'll just jump in here. I, I absolutely, I mean, I think, uh, you know, we haven't touched on too much the um, utility of the RNS as almost like a long-term invasive monitoring device. Um, you know, there are, I mean, we don't really have experience of this on the pediatric side, at least I haven't personally, but I know at adult centers who are implanting higher volumes of, for example, uh, bilateral hippocampal RNS devices, there are some patients that they're discovering that actually have a uh, vast majority of their seizures coming from one of the temporal lobes. And for whatever reason, maybe uh, it, it comes to the point where for some push, maybe they have a device complication or something and it has to get explanted and they now become, you know, a, uh, resect, a resection candidates, whereas previously um, they would not have been. So there is definitely some value in, in that. And um, as you said, just monitoring outcomes. I mean, we all have almost every patient we implant with invasive uh, electrodes ends up having some electrical seizures that are not clinically evident or, and sometimes not even evident on scalp recordings. So um, that direct brain uh, recording of seizures is definitely going to give us a better sense for what's truly happening um, and, uh, and, and pick up more um, uh, for sure. I agree. Um, you know, I, I think one of the challenges in clinical epilepsy research is that outcome measure, right? Um, how accurate is patient reporting? Um, uh, especially, uh, it's also prone to recall bias and um, other degradation of uh, data over time. So, um, and also depends on the caregiver, especially in children, right? Because they, they, they're not going to report their seizures and they may not have awareness. So it really comes up, uh, comes down to a caregiver. So, um, and I think that's a big challenge in, in any sort of any clinical epilepsy study. If you don't have good outcome measures, um, uh, it's hard to evaluate the effectiveness of your treatments. Um, so I, I think in that sense, the RNS has sort of been a game changer. Um, getting data that you just wouldn't be able to get with any other means. Uh, people are starting to use it in very innovative ways. Um, Skelly did mention how uh, patients who thought to have multifocal epilepsy sometimes can go on to a resection or ablation, uh, but we're also getting specific seizure data. So for some patients, it turns out that their seizures happen in clusters at a certain time every month or every two weeks. So people are using it for uh, seizure prediction algorithms that can hugely also benefit quality of life for certain patients. Uh, people are trying to uh, determine what medications may be effective or not, depending on what the ECOG looks like after that medication is taken. So there is a ton of data. We still don't know what to do with this amount of data, but, but it's certainly nice to have. And, and you know, the, um, the reports, uh, I've seen some of these reports that are uh, generated where they kind of show how the patient's doing in terms of, again, it's all electrographic data. There's no uh, clinical data there. Uh, and, you know, the clinical data is still important because you don't want to be just measuring electrographic uh, seizure reduction. 
but um, uh, yeah, we're getting data that we're just not able to get with any other uh, current neuromodulation, uh, um, commercially available neuromodulation strategy. Um, and, and I think it's an exciting time uh, for um, epilepsy surgery and, and, uh, and also for, uh, I think this type of data can really help uh, research endeavors like you mentioned as well. Okay, for, for my very last question, which will, brief, will be brief, um, as you may know, there was that Netflix series uh, diagnosis where a child was treated with RNS. Have you had any patients or families ask you about that at all? So um, I have had patients ask me about that. I, uh, you know, I've reached out to um, Dr. Katan. Um, He's got experience uh, in treating uh, two patients with raspicins encephalitis who have both done quite well. Um, I, 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 uh, we corresponded about that. And I've treated one as well with raspicin encephalitis. Um, with a, a neocortical approach following a um, SEG evaluation. And I've also gotten tremendous response. Um, I think, um, I mean, this data needs to be published. Um, still waiting for long-term data. Um, but for, for our patient, uh, we even placed the thalamic electrode that was not connected, uh, just in case um, the neocortical um, leads um, don't give us a, the response that we're looking for. So, um, you know, these are patients you got to think about uh, that may not have any other options, right? Uh, like I said earlier, you know, a teenage patient who's fully functional um, with uh, a, a diagnosis like Raspicin encephalitis, there's really not much else to offer. So, so I think uh, we need to rethink about um, indications. Um, and uh, the other thing I was just going to mention about RNS that I was going to say earlier is, um, I think it's probably even better suited to the pediatric brain, because um, I would think that neuromodulation, especially early on, um, before the brain has been exposed to years and years and decades of seizures, may be more amenable to a neuromodulation strategy. Um, that's my hunch. Obviously, we have to see what the data shows and how it compares to the adult population. Um, but for that reason, I, I think uh, maybe uh, the pediatric population may be even a better uh, patient population to treat than, than the adults when it comes to RNS. Okay, with that, uh, thank you um, both so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. And in closing, I'll remind our listeners that you can claim 1.5 CME credits for this podcast activity, and you can find it through the CNS online uh, education catalog. Uh, furthermore, all general podcasts are complimentary, and we hope uh, you enjoyed listening to our conversation today. Thank you so much. <laughs>